Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that are here tonight. We will start our verse-by-verse exposition on Malachi. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Malachi chapter 1, please. Malachi chapter 1 tonight. If you weren't here in the morning, I would encourage you to get the study we did this morning on the first nine verses of chapter 2. Um, just the calling out of the priest. Um, we're going to get some of it here in chapter 1. But just um, um, all the things that God had done for Israel, all the history they had. Um, and, and yet, after bringing them back and after doing so much, and here they were in the same place. There's a consistency in the scriptures constantly, and that is that God is holy and that man is sinful. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us would be saved. Not one of us. And so Malachi here is the twelfth and final minor prophet who spoke somewhere around 420 to 397, as we pointed out in the introduction. He is the third of the post-captivity prophets. The other two we just finished, Haggai and Zechariah, they spoke about 520. Here in the opening um, five verses, we get the love of God for Israel declared. In verse 1, we get the introduction. He says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The word burden, as we share many times, is the proclamation of judgment. With the idea of carrying or lifting to proclaim, bearing this burden. Um, Jeremiah they said, the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And God says, don't use that anymore. Because it had been just a, a, a cliche for people to say as if they were spiritual and that. And um, God said, don't use it. It's a legitimate term. It's a, a term of judgment. It's the burden that God laid on this prophet to proclaim uh, against the priests and that. Um, it has the idea of being a mighty, a weighty message. It's not a, a light message. It's not a message of, of, of joy. God doesn't proclaim judgment with the smack of his lips or with uh, uh, salivating about it. He does it with a broken heart. Jesus um, wept over Jerusalem and then he pronounced judgment over her. When he was being led to the cross, he says, um, um, don't pray for me, pray for your children. And from the cross, he says, uh, you Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It didn't mean they didn't know that they were crucifying and being cruel to him, but they didn't realize or understand the ramification of their actions, as so many times men and women do. They do something, and they think, well, it's no insignificant. Oh, it won't mean it. It won't affect me. It won't affect nobody else. And down the road, down the years, you find out how it does affect you. You don't understand now, but you will hereafter. In fact, he told the disciples about the, much of the teaching that he gave. And here, um, this burden would be um, of a heavy, heavy thing upon them. Um, again, here, the particular phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord, is found only three times in the Old Testament, exactly like this. And we saw it in Zechariah 9, 1, and 12, 1, and here we have it in Malachi again, verse 1. And the proclamation of judgment is addressed to the nation of Israel. Okay? Before, prior to the captivity, there was a northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And so Israel was used for the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and then Judah for the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. Now, when the word Israel is used after the post-Babylonian captivity, it's used for all the twelve tribes. Okay? So how you use the term depends on the historical time that it's being used. So it's very, very important. Now, the prophet is named Malachi, meaning my messenger. Uh, he's the messenger of God, just as Zechariah, just as Obadiah, and many of them were. And in verse 2 and 3, we have the love of God um, that is denied by Israel. And so here he says, I love you. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste the mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. 
Now, God proclaimed his love here for Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. Because they're asking, where have you loved us? They're, 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 this is a very sarcastic, very disrespectful book. It's, it's like a, a child, a teen who is being arrogant and sarcastic to his father or mother as they are asking questions of him. Uh, trying to do the best for him. And they're saying, well, you've never done anything for me. Oh, you make my life miserable. And you, know, you know how that goes, right? The same thing here. Um, this is the perfect tense. I love you. The love of God for Israel is declared throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. Jeremiah 31, 3. Hosea 11, 1. Uh, the whole prophecy of Hosea is to declare God's love how he has put away the adulterous wife and he's going to redeem her back to himself. His love is poured out all over. It's recorded throughout the scriptures. Israel uh, responds uh, and responded here uh, of the nation of Israel is uh, a cold, sarcastic attitude which uh, communicates doubt about God's love. Yet in what way have you loved us? Bad attitude. This is the first of seven responses that you can follow through as we go there, back and forth. God quotes their very words. They were resentful regarding their captivity and that the kingdom and Messiah had not come. After 139 years or so, since Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah had proclaimed it. You know, during the 70s and 80s and the 90s, people came to the Lord and boy, they were so set on this and that. And when uh, um, everybody was sure that the Lord would come in the mid 80s and didn't, how many were like this? And they went back into the world and they got all bitter against the Lord and this and that. Listen, if the Lord wants to tarry a thousand years, that's all right with me. It doesn't matter. When I die, I'm instantly present. While I'm here, he'll use me to minister the gospel and to reach others. So either way, it doesn't matter to me. He will come. He will come in his own time. He warns us over and over again, no man knows the day or the hour. Be careful of pastors or yourself putting dates or trying to figure out the calendar. That Just put it away, okay? Just be ready. <laughs> be living in such a way uh, to be ready. They were ungrateful, not seeing the return of God. Um, And they were ungrateful by not returning their love to God for all he had done. They were indifferent because they were looking for temporal prosperity and comfort as evidence of his love. God has given us a spiritual kingdom. You realize there's a difference between the Old Testament and nation of Israel, the wife, we're the bride of Christ. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. We're looking for a heavenly kingdom. They're looking for a material kingdom. Ours is a spiritual kingdom. So what do you do with all these positive confession guys that says that you got to be healthy and wealthy because you're a king's kid? Completely unbiblical. Doesn't mean God's not going to provide for us, but that's not the goal of the church. Okay? It's completely wrong. Absolutely wrong. They were sarcastic because they had become disillusioned, disheartened, doubting God's love. If you look at God's love, only what he can give you, you think he's Santa Claus, not God. There's a big difference. They were insensitive because their sin had blinded their perspective about God's love. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. Stop and think about it. The majority of the church throughout the church age has suffered and lived in poverty. Do you realize that, right? We, the church in America, are the exception. And maybe it's not good because we judge God's love by what we can get so often and what we have. The church has always suffered. Christians have been martyred, persecuted, defamed. They still are today. 
the Armenian genocide was against Christians. Genocide in Rwanda, Christians by Muslims. It's always like that. No labels put on it, but it's always a genocide of Christians. So we are the rare exception. So a lot of the gospel that comes out from the United States is westernized. It's not really examined in light of what and who the church is of Jesus Christ. Notice there at the end of 2 and into 3, God responded, declaring the evidence of his love. Yahweh had chosen the nation of Israel over the nation of Edom. This is the context. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He's quoting the event that's going on in Genesis 25 when Rebekah was having a hard time with her pregnancy in Genesis 25, 23, and she sought the Lord, and, she, and he said, you have two nations in your womb. Okay? So what God is talking about here about love and hate is about nations, not individual persons like Jacob and Esau. But he's talking about nations. Now, Calvinists very deceitfully will quote this passage in Romans 9, 10 through 13 as individual salvation when the context of Romans 9 is about God choosing sovereignly the nation of Israel and rejecting the nation of Edom because Edom was evil. In fact, God hated hate for Esau was because he was a profane man, Hebrews twelve sixteen tells us. So when someone points you to the book of Romans in chapter nine about your predestination, who he predestined for new, whom he for new, boom, 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 and all that, okay? And it's true, God knows. But God didn't have to see the evil of Esau to be able to say the statement at the end of the Old Testament. He knew it at the beginning. He knew it before that woman had those two kids in her womb. But the history reflects exactly how evil Edom was, and we'll be touching more on this right here as we move on. So the context of this is talking about nations, not individual salvation and predestination. It's a complete distortion of the scripture completely and they do it all the time and i'm amazed because they are very academic some of those guys are just intellectual giants but you don't get into heaven because of brains sometimes we are so set on our own belief that we twist the scripture it's a square peg but I've got this round, or, or it's a square hole, but I'm going to have this round peg. I'm going to put it in there regardless of what. Rather than allowing the figure of the square or, or circle and to match it up with it, interpret it properly. And so this is very important. God had brought judgment over Edom. He laid waste on the mountain there in verse 3. As heritage for jackals in the wilderness. And as we look at the history of, of Edom, such was the case. And so um, Esau represents the flesh. In verse um, 4 and 5, he says, Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus saith the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so here the judgment of God over Edom had come in spite of Esau's attempt to rebound. 
God proclaimed judgment over Edom for her treachery against Israel when Babylon conquered them. You have it in Lamentations chapter 4. We have it in Ezekiel 25, 12, 35, 1 through 15, Obadiah 10 through 16, Psalm 137, 7. How they betrayed Israel and they turned them over to Babylon. They blocked the, the roads and they turned people over from the river and they just laughed. And then they were planning to go in and to take the land. Wow. The land belongs to God. And God gave the land to Israel. And anybody who tries to divide that land in the past or in the present or in the future of God tarries is fighting against God. It's futile. Absolutely futile. Edom refused to let Israel pass through the land. Remember in Numbers 20, verse 14 through 21, when they were coming through. They have water and stuff like that to purchase from them. They were defeated by the Philistines, the Nabataean Arabs, and Babylon. Amos 9.12 speaks about it. All the prophets have a section to condemn judgment against Edom and other Gentile nations as we've gone through Jeremiah, Isaiah, even Zechariah and others. In 126 B.C., John Hyrcanus subdued Edom and forced them to become circumcised Jews. The last, the last Edomite was Herod. He's called an Idumean. When's the last time you heard of an Edomite? None around. None at all. And so God was true to his word. Edom's a type of the flesh, that which is always against the spirit of God, the people of God, always in opposition. Now, all this can be verified through history, what happened to them. I've just given you a little bit of information, but you can uh, uh, look up history of what happened, again, with the Nabataeans and Babylon and everything else. Now, in verse 6 down to 14, to the end of the chapter, you have the defiled priesthood indicted here by God. And it gets real ugly and sarcastic through the rest of this chapter, as we already got a little taste of it. In verse 6... He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we, have we despised your name? See, again, it's like, you know, rebellious children. They just, they're disrespectful. The charge against Israel is by God regarding the lack of honor and reverence towards him. Again, God stated the natural respect given to a father or a master here as he states a son honors his father, a servant his master. Just a common example of common life. Um, society has different levels of seniority of of societal things and otherwise it wouldn't function. And when, when society becomes decayed and disintegrating, nothing functions because nobody wants to submit. Two pillars are necessary for things to be effective. Someone's got to have the authority to command and someone's got to have the submission to carry it out. If those two don't happen, nothing happens. And that's exactly what's happened to our nation. Nobody wants to obey. Nobody wants to submit. Everybody wants to be boss, to be the head. God made the parallel. He is father of the nation and lord of each man. Where's my honor? And am I a master? Where's my reverence? Rhetorical questions have to be answered. God is said to be the father of the nation in Deuteronomy 32.6. God called Israel his son, his firstborn, out of the Exodus in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. God is their father and redeemer of Israel, Isaiah 63, 16 says. And God is the guide and the protector of his people, Jeremiah 3, 4. Hosea 11, 1 through 4. And so God is the one. Now, no individual in the Old Testament ever called God father. No Jew ever prayed, Our Father or Father. 
The only time the term father appears in the scriptures in the Old Testament regarding the nation of Israel is in terms that he's the father of the nation, but not of individuals. It is only in the New Testament that Jesus brings us as sons of God, and we can address him as our father. Okay? Now, when Jesus prayed with the disciples together, he, he didn't pray with them, our father. He said, my father and your father. <laughs> he never included himself with them. Okay? And so there's a big difference between the Old and New Testament. Um, notice God charged the priest there in verse 6 with dishonoring his name. The one speaking is, says the Lord of hosts, to you, priests who despise my name. So the captain of the armies of heaven, as we've seen 24 times in this book, God emphasizes these are his words, says the Lord of hosts. He is addressing the nation. Even as when a father confronts his son or his daughter who has been disrespectful to the mother or even to them, and they sit down and they look at him eye to eye and face to face and says, grab a chair, grab some wood, bub, and things are laid down. You see, this is God. He's dealing very severely with these rebellious and defiled priests. The priests are directly addressed, verse 6 of chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 2. All that proceeds in verse 6 equates despising the name of Yahweh. The word despising means to have contempt, to think, to be worthless. This is the problem that happens at the time when children rebel against the authority of their parents. They think their parents are a bunch of morons. They think their parents are there just to make their life miserable. They think their life is, 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 is destroyed because, you know, their parents aren't hip. Well, your parents are not your friends. But if your parents are parents, they will be your best friends in the future. Guaranteed. But while you're growing up, they don't need to be your friend. They need to be your parent. And then one day you may be best friends. You understand? There's a big difference. Too many parents today and in 20 years, 30 years past, I got this um, kind of lose relationship and, you know, and, and try to be equal with their kids. And it, it just doesn't work. Okay, there's always the parent-son and child relationship that cannot be ignored. And so, God quotes their own words for the second time here. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Hard nuts to crack. It's just one thing after the other. The response is disrespectful again, dishonorable. They were self-willed children. Challenging the one who had all authority over them. All authority. In verse 7 down to 9, you have the response of God to their um, denial of despising his name. He says, you, uh, you offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Wow. Now, these are conversations that go on between parent and children, parent and teens. Try to reason, trying to show them. You're looking at their face. You're looking for that body language. You're looking for that broken spirit, that acknowledgement of the air. You're looking for repentance. You're looking for asking of forgiveness so you can love them, so you can bless them, so you can be one. That's the whole goal behind all this. Now, God knows exactly that they weren't going to repent. But he has recorded for, for us to understand how God is always pursuing lost man. And that it is always the fault of man that he's not found and forgiven 
and has a relationship with God. God goes out of his way. God told them who they dis- how they despise his name. You offered defiled food on my altar, my altar. You tell your son, your daughter, you sleep in my bed. You eat my food. You're wearing my clothes. <laughs> you see this whole liberal mentality that, you know, you can be emancipated from your parents. Only holly weird people do because they have the money. Okay? Not normal people. And your friends, they'll put up with you one or two days. And their parents will ask you to leave. It's not reality. This is the bronze altar where the sacrifice was. And remember, the temple's been built, right? Zechariah, Haggai, it's years past. They're still going through motions. God, for the third time, quoted their words for the third time. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? Parents do this all the time. Didn't you say? Didn't you? Oh, no. Either they'll try to explain it away or deny it, knowing that it's a lie. Because when your heart is hard and you're, 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 you're so set on your own way, your own will, your pride does not allow you to say, I was wrong. It's a heart condition. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 again. Heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. God only knows the depths of it. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? God says in two ways they had defiled him. Seven down to eight. By their attitude first. By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Ooh. Meaning vile, worthless. I look at um, the men that come in to usher and to serve here during the week and on Sunday and Sunday night and everything. And they just, they just love the Lord. They just love to be here. They just love to do it. I mean, if I saw one of them come in and say, what, how long do I have to stay here? One hour? Oh, man. Hey, can you make it short tonight? You know. That hour seems like 10 hours, Pastor. Because there's no heart there. But when people have a heart for God, they serve the Lord. They, they, they're excited about the study of the Word of God. They're there. They're, the hour flies, the two hours, whatever's going on. It, it's a new life. It's, it's a new uh, desire. It's a new mentality. Everything because of the new heart. That makes a difference. Then second by their actions. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice. Wow. God asked them a rhetorical question. Is it not evil? Rhetorical questions only have one answer. Yes. <laughs> if you say no, you, you're wrong answer. It is evil. And when you as a parent confront your child or someone else or a spouse and, and you, you ask a question like this and the answer is very obvious, they, they either will get in your face and just be more adamant or they will look down and won't even answer. One is arrogance, the other one's guilt. But the answer is very, very obvious. So God continues to expose their evil with another rhetorical question. And when you offer the layman sick, is it not evil? They offered the blind, the lame, the injured, the sick, which was prohibited by the law in Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 15, and many other passages. And so, in verse 8, then God made application to their evil. Offer them to your governor. <laughs> wow. Would he be pleased with you? 
Of course, I thought you were cheap. You know, some people think that they really just, they help God a lot by what they give. They'll give some used clothes or a used couch or something. Really? What's wrong with the new one? Now, we don't need a couch. We don't need clothes. But I'm just saying this is the mentality of so many people. You know, we've got to help God out. Poor God. He's always broke. And we get this because of the pastors that all they are is beggars. They always present God as broke. That God can't support his own church. God can't take care of what he started. But if God starts to work, he finishes. And if he does, and the word of God is being taught, then God deals with the heart of the people. And the people are being taught and grounded and God is dealing with them. They become a part of that work and God will take care of the things. The responsibility of the pastors and the leaders is to make sure that they don't spend more than they take in. They live within their means and they seek the Lord for what he wants. And I mean, what God has done here is so incredible. Like I told you often, I'm just in awe of it. I mean, we started in a home study and God just developed and added to the church and then he gave us this building six and a half years later. Uh, we couldn't afford this thing and yet he gave it to us. A bank gave us a loan when really we couldn't make the payments per month and they say we could do it and, and it was pennies here, pennies there and God took care of it and then God gave us a gym and we built that after the earthquake and they paid that off cash and then later on this and, and everything. I don't know where. I don't know how. But... The simple principle that Pastor Chuck used to teach of God, guys, he provides, ladies and gentlemen. This is not boasting. I am more shocked than any of you, okay? When the earthquake, where the earthquake came and it cracked the little church that was where the gym is, that's where the Nazarenes first started. The cornerstone, I think, was 1926 or 29, something like that. And it cracked. It was all brick. God, doggone it. Okay. So we had to take it down because the brick and mortar, all that. And then we had to have the refilled and engineered and all that. But God had to crack that building so he could build the gym that was going to be utilized in such a greater way than that little, beautiful little building would have ever used. I, I, I would never thought of that. I would have never dared to pray, Lord, why don't you send an earthquake and crack that building in so we can put some else there. I don't know what God's going to do. I just show up every week. Yeah? Teach you the word of God. Pray. We see what God has. And so this is, um, this is one of the, um, the bad things about ministries always begging and pastors always begging. Is slandering God. Always. Pastor Chuck, when he was alive, you anytime you heard him on the radio, he never begged and he never allowed that person who was doing his radio broadcasts or programs to ever say, not even, we appreciate your spiritual support. Nothing ever. In fact, he gave stuff away free all the time. Now once he's died, it's all you have is begging. That's all they do on K-Wave. majority of people on there are not Calvary's. It's amazing. But see, God raises other people. No big deal. He'll raise up people that will trust Him and do the work for Him, and it's no big deal. Every generation, God raises up people to serve Him, and He shows Himself strong on their behalf. If they trust Him, and they walk with Him. He uses normal people, ladies and gentlemen, and so, certainly if they wouldn't offer it to their governors, why would they offer it to God? Again, the one confronting them here is um, the Lord of hosts. The one who is going to judge them. The one who is either their protector or their enemy he will fight for you or against you it all depends on you he says 
If you get right with me, I'll be your protector. If you rebel against me, I will be your enemy. Read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the blessings and curses. Leviticus 26. God is very, very clear. He enumerates some nasty things he will do. As you look at the history of Israel and the Jew, God doesn't lie at all. In verse 9, he says, But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hand, will he accept your Accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. So here in verse 9, there's a bit of irony from God's perspective. The absurdity of their evil practices. It's irony here. Kind of mocking them. He told them to seek God for some benefit. And treat God. See if he's gracious to you. Seek his face. Stroke his face. You know, like when you're a parent and, you know, your kid's been bad and, and he wants something and they come up to you, hey, Mom, I can't, I can't do and you know what they're after, right? Now, we think, this is the thing, we think that God is like us, that God's like a man. We get taken in, so we think we can take God in. No, you can't take God in. He knows our heart. He told them to do so as they were offering the defile Sick offering. <laughs> Do that. Offer that rotten stuff and, and treat him. See what happens. He made it plain that God would neither be entreated nor be gracious to them. By another rhetorical question. Will he accept you favorably? No. Of course not. The one interrogating them is the undefeated commander of heaven, the Lord of hosts. Wow. Look at verse 10. You have the wise counsel from God to the offensive and vile priests here. Verse 10 says, Who is there even among you who would uh, shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts nor will I accept an offering from your hands. He just tells them flat out as he's reproving them. And they just keep being sarcastic and disrespectful. And he finally looks at him and says, listen to me. You're a parent. You know what I'm talking about. When you don't see that brokenness, when you don't see that respect, you say, all right, listen, be quiet and listen. This is what's going on here. God called for one sensible man to do what was right. Enter the temple, shut the doors, so you don't kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I don't notice it. I don't accept it. It makes me nauseous. I don't accept it at all. Their lives were sinful, their offerings blemished and unacceptable. And so God declared he rejected them for approaching him. I have no pleasure in you. Now, do you think God delights in sacrifices? The book of Hebrews says he doesn't. He just used those prophetically to point to Christ. He had to have a method by which the sin would be covered until the true payment came. Blood was the token. Leviticus 17, 11. And so, they all pointed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the true high priest. And so, here, he just tells them flat out that he would not accept them. So, he doesn't delight in sacrifices. He doesn't delight in, in what we can give to him um, to obey is better than the sacrifice that hearken to the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, First Samuel fifteen twenty two. That is in the context when Saul disobeyed God and tried to offer up the sacrifices that he kept. When he should have wiped them all out. And there are a lot of people like that that think they can buy God. You know, there are people who serve on church boards 
or on different committees. We don't have none of these things, so it doesn't matter to us. But, um, you know, they're the wealthy people of the community. They're the ones that, you know, the society looks up to. And here they're, they're on boards and decision-making for churches, and they're not even born again. They're rotten to the core. They're dishonest. And, 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 and the, all they're doing is they're running a company. Amazing. Amazing. The church of Laodicea was lukewarm, and God said he would vomit her out of his mouth unless she repented. Revelation 3.16. Look at verse 11. The proclamation of God about the greatness of his name in the kingdom age. This verse just kind of, we've seen this in the minor prophets where all of a sudden he's dealing with a contemporary situation and all of a sudden God will just leap way into the future, the latter days or the kingdom age. Uh, here's one in verse 11 here. Uh, he says, for from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered in my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so here, um, this will be um, every day. Notice what he says. From the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Wow. We know that this didn't happen in the past. We know this is still isn't happening right now. So this points to the kingdom age. Um, there are Gentiles who are being saved, but not everybody. And so here is very, very uh, clear that it deals with an everyday situation. So it has to be talking about the kingdom age. This will be in every where every location, listen to what he says, in every place incense shall be offered to my name in pure offering. Is that happening right now? Never. Not happened in the past. So it has to point to the kingdom age. Only the kingdom age, uh, when it's here, will um, uh, the worship be of Jesus. No one else. No one whatsoever. Incense is symbolic of prayers, you know, in the Old Testament, as well as incense... As for the New Testament in the book of Revelation 5.8, that's the throne of God. The incense that's going up, which is the prayer of the saints. So it's symbolic of that. Um, this will be during the millennial kingdom again, for my name shall be great among the nations, he says. Um, once again, the Lord of hosts. A very key phrase. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who fulfilled the promise of establishing the kingdom for them. He's talking to the nation of Israel, not the church, okay? Many people take a lot of these things in the Old Testament when God is addressing Israel, and they transfer it to the church. And they say that God is through with Israel. It's called replacement theology. And that uh, God has put away Israel. She's done with her. And now the church is spiritual Israel. And that all the promises and everything in the Old Testament, everything is for us. Wrong. You have failed your subject of Bible. There is a difference between the bride of Jesus Christ as a virgin, Jew-Gentile being one in Christ, the wife that's been put away by adultery, Israel, that God will redeem once again and be reconciled to her. The church is looking for a heavenly kingdom. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. Okay? One has been married... The other one is looking for a marriage. Big difference. So God is not through with Israel. And if he is, what do you do with Romans 9, 10, and 11? What do you do with all the major and the minor prophets, all the, all the amount of, for the millennial kingdom? What do you do with Isaiah, Jeremiah? What do you do with all of those? Well, what they do is they just right there, they cross out Israel and they put the church. The majority of churches teach replacement theology. And a lot of anti-Semitism comes from the church for that. Fuller Seminary, replacement theology. APU, replacement theology. And the majority of Christian universities and seminaries, replacement theology. Wow. What do you do with all this material? You can't just ignore it. You can't just spiritualize it. You can't just... Fill in subjectively what you want. When you get, go get your car fixed and the mechanic says you need a clutch. You don't say, okay, go on and put a carburetor in. No, clutch is a clutch. 
carburetor is a carburetor. You can't just swap it off. And yet people do it all the time. He's the covenant God. He fulfills his promises. All nations shall come to Jerusalem once a year. The Feast of Tabernacle. We saw that in Zechariah 14, 17, and 18. Or they will not receive rain. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks of all the nations coming in. And Jesus will be teaching from Jerusalem. It will be the political center, the, the worship center, spiritual center, political center, the, uh, the banking center. Everything. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Now, people don't like to hear that today, but that's the way it is. And that includes the church today. All right? So you need to read your Bible with clear glasses, not colored glasses, okay? And verse 12 through 13, you have the practice of the priests that stood in contrast now to what he had just said in verse 11, the kingdom age. In verse 12, he says, You also say, Oh, what a wearisome, um, what a wearisome, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Wow. In verse 12, the priests were dishonoring the name of God in contrast to what we just read in verse 11. God charged them with their sin, but you profane it, the name of God. God quoted their words for the third time. Is that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its food, its food is contemptible. It's always good to use people's words. Today, people put so much information out on whatever all those electronic media things are called, okay? And people don't realize how foolish they are and how all that information can be gathered and used against you. Even if it's not cochino stuff or different things like that, but even if it's just information... You have to be discreet in what you put out. It's all over. Okay? It's all in the cloud. <laughs> all right? The less people know me and about me, better off I am. That's good. Everybody puts stuff out there that's just, and then they say some stupid stuff and it's in writing. Text. It's gone. But it's not forgotten. Everything is recorded and kept. Nothing's ever erased, ladies and gentlemen. And Barack Obama made sure that all of that stuff was kept. He unified the accumulation of information through the educational bills. He did what was illegal to do, a one-center banking uh, information set for the whole nation, which was unconstitutional. He did it through the education. If you receive money, you have to allow this. Wow. Amazing. And so the priests here were totally unrepentant in verse 13. God quoted their words again. You also say, oh, what a wearisome. It's all laborious to serve the Lord. Really. God revealed their disdain for it. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. I hear you. I see you. You as a parent once again. I mean, this book is just a parent-child relationship. <laughs> You know, you tell your son or daughter something and, and, and you say, now go to your room. And, and as you turn around, if you don't look bad, they go, on. You know, but you know, so you turn around, they go, ah. you see, you hear, right? Well, God doesn't have to catch you. He sees everything. He knows everything, right? So he, he, he just shows their foolishness. God reminded them of their detestable offerings. And you bring the stolen. Here it is again. Lame, the sick, 
Thus you bring an offering. God exposed their guilt for one more rhetorical question. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Of course not. As he finishes this chapter in verse 14, he says, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The curse by God here on the deceptive person that gives a deceptive vow. God declares this was the common practice of the day, both by priests as well as the lay person. But cursed is the deceiver who has in his flock a male, and he makes a vow. But he sacrifices to the Lord a blemished female. So you make a vow. Now, the interesting thing about vows, if you look at the, in the law, you didn't have to make a vow. There was no, no compulsion or no demand to make vows. No, you didn't have to make a vow. But if you made a vow, God was listening, and you were held to it. Okay? You, you had to follow through with it. Sometimes we say, well, I'm going to do that. And then you go, doggone it, why did I say that? You, know, you got to keep your word, right? So this guy, you know, he's got the, he says, I'll, 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 I'll dedicate that, that male goat to, to the Lord, you know, and, and, and I'll give it to him. And, and all of a sudden, you know, he starts changing his mind and he sees this female that's the, the sheep or something that's ready to kick the bucket. And he says, you know what, I'll just take her before she really shows anything, signs of it, and I'll offer it to the Lord. Now, you may fool people, but you don't fool the Lord. Now, again, God is not broken. God doesn't want your things, and uh, you have to be careful of all this. Um, we'll be dealing with them um, uh, in the following chapter. At the end there, when God deals, he says, um, you have robbed me. He says, where have you robbed you? He said, in your, your tithing and, and your offerings. And he gets in their faces over that. Now, again, is God broke? No. But he's confronting them, right? When you get in front of your children and confront them on things, it's not because you want something from them or you need something from them, but there's a mutual accountability responsibility and you're preparing them for life, right? That's what it's about. And so, here again, um, a vow is not required, but here you have the deception to appear like if you really love the Lord and they really you know, devoted to God and, 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 and you're doing all this. If, if what I do, I do to be seen of men like the Pharisees, the scribes, then I have my reward. And there is no reward for me. Sometimes um, people will ask me when it comes to giving to God, um, is, it, is it a tithe? Is it a what percentage? And do I do it from growth or I do it from net? I go, I said, I don't know. You go talk to God about it. I don't, I don't even get in that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, stop and think about it. When you go eat at a restaurant and you leave a tip, you leave a 2% tip, 10% tip, well, you should leave 15 to 20%. You're going to tip your waiter more than you give to God? <laughs> We're a bunch of cheapskates. We're hanging on to that penny so tight that Lincoln's eyeballs are popping out. Listen, the minute I was born again the first weekend, I was 30 to 40% financially ahead. And that weekend, when I was saved, I didn't go out and buy all kinds of booze. I didn't get in a fight. I didn't tear my clothes. I didn't crash my car. Man, I saved a lot of money the first weekend automatically when you come to God and you live differently, you're financially ahead. Let alone that now you don't buy compulsively. You say, Lord, should I have this? You live within your means. And you're a good steward of it. Simple. Wow. And then we're asking, well, do we give five, ten? Would you go to God. <laughs> That's between you and the Lord. 
I have nothing to do with that whatsoever. So God reminds the priest of who he was, for I am the great king. I'll leave you with this. That's who he is. What do you do when a king invites you to his house? Do you, do you take him an apple with a worm in it? Um, of course you don't. You give him your best. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. On the inscription of, on the cross above the head of Jesus, it says, Jesus, king of the Jews. The Jews got mad. Do not say he is king. To say he said. And Herod wanted to get back. Hey, what is written is written. That's the way it is. Suck it up. <laughs> he got back at him. Book of Revelation 19, 16 says, And he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He came as a humble servant. He was ridiculed. He was spat on. He was crucified. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you, myself, for all those who call on his name. But when he comes back, he's coming back as king to save this world from itself, to destroy the armies of the world in the battle of Armageddon and set up the kingdom. And then he will judge the nations as we've seen before on how they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. And that will determine whether they are allowed to enter in or not. Pretty heavy. So God declares all of mankind is to fear him. And my name is to be feared among the nations. This is what God desires. The fear to revere him. To acknowledge him. But you know when I was growing up. I, I feared my dad and I respected my dad. I think both of those things are meant in this word. It's a healthy fear that I didn't want to hurt my parents because I loved them and revered them, but at the same time, I didn't want my dad to confront me, <laughs> all right? That's why men are so important in the home. When ladies have to be the head and the tail, it doesn't work. God told Israel, I've made you the head, the rest of the nation's tail. But because you've acted like a, like, a, like a tail, I will make you the tail now instead of the head. Wow. Men, you are um, essential to your home, to your children. No one can replace you. And so you seek the Lord for wisdom, your king, your savior. Fear his name. Like people, like priests, Hosea says. All of this will be fulfilled in the kingdom age. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to direct and guide us. Thank you for your love for us, Lord, and your patience and your mercy. Lord, I pray for the needs that are here tonight, that you would speak to our hearts and those that are listening over the Internet, Lord. And, Father, you would continue to do a great work. We look to you, to your spirit, your word, nothing we can do, Lord. And yet, Father, as we come, we come by faith, just resting at your feet, that you might instruct us and guide us, that you correct us, Lord. And the Lord, we would not be rebellious like um, the priests here in the book of Malachi, but the Lord, we would be broken before you and ask forgiveness, acknowledge our errors, and the Lord, you would just um, have your hand upon us. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit, if you believe that Jesus Christ is God who became man and died for your sins, and if you believe that you're a sinner, all of that's by the grace of God, by His Holy Spirit turning on that light. But now you have to ask God to forgive you and ask Him to save you. He doesn't save you against your will. If you desire to be born again, and to open your heart and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is your prayer to Him. And He's going to save you by forgiving you all of your sins right now. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. 
Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.